0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Read Aloud. Um, we're happy to welcome uh, the Ohioana Library for our annual Valentine's Day program. Um, I'm gonna, I'd, I'd like to introduce Linda Hengst, who's the director of the Ohioana Library, and she's um, responsible for bringing back one of our very favorite readers, Donna McMeans. Um, and she's going to read from several of her books for us today. So, Linda, would you like to say a few words about Ohioana? I would. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Donna, and and I just am thrilled to be a part of the Read Aloud here at The Ohio State University and part of the Library Systems Program. Um, I'm the executive director of the Ohioana Library, and the Ohioana Library is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year. Our mission is to collect, promote, foster, and uh, celebrate Ohio writers and their work. And in so doing, we maintain a collection of now 45,000 books that have all been written by Ohioans or they're about Ohio or an Ohioan. And some people go, oh, it's about Ohio history, right? And it's like... Well, not in your usual sense of Ohio history, because our literature really reflects our cultural history. The literary tastes of a state and a country tells us more, I think, than um, what day the Declaration of Independence was signed. Um, That's an important date, but if you really want to have a feel for the people, you get to know the readers and the writers. So our collection, as I said, contains forty five thousand books, uh twenty-five thousand uh biographical files on Ohio writers, musicians, artists and others of note, ten thousand pieces of sheet music, all Ohio related. We also publish a quarterly magazine which I brought a few copies that I would be happy if you took with you. Uh, The Quarterly has been in publication uh, for 50 years now. We celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Quarterly last year. Through the years, more than 10,000 books have been reviewed in the Quarterly. And each each editor um, does a slightly different thing with the Quarterly. We're now looking at doing some features around certain issues. And this uh, issue that you have are the lively arts. So it's quite fun. Also, we do an annual awards program recognizing from young writers in high school, hoping to foster their talent up through our career award and the career award may go to a writer such as Toni Morrison or Virginia Hamilton or R.L. Stein or an artist such as Amina Robinson or um, Queen Brooks that received the award last year. Those awards are given each fall and we've been doing the awards since 1942. The newest part of our program is our Ohioana Book Festival. We did a festival in 2007, one in 2008. They uh, actually happened to fall within the same fiscal year and within nine months of each other so we were a little crazed in the process. We're preparing for our 2009 Ohioana Book Festival, which, by the way, will be um, on May 9th. It's Mother's Day weekend. We will have 10 featured authors at the festival, um, and they will include um, children's authors such as Jamie Adoff or R.L. Stein. Now, do any of you know R.L. Stein? <laughs> <laughs> Ghostbumps. Fear Street and Horrorland is his newest um, um, series that has come out. He has been celebrated until um, the um, Harry Potter series as the <coughs> most printed children's author ever with more than 4 million copies of his book uh, books printed and I think in 35 different languages. But it's not just a children's book festival. It covers uh, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, as well as literature for uh, children and young adults. mentioned the um, ten featured authors. Um, We also have another 65 to 75 authors who will be there doing readings, signing their books, meeting the public. And it's not just come and buy books. It's an opportunity to come and meet the authors, to sit in in panels, to ask questions, to meet personally with authors. Um, So it's a whole day of programming. It's free, it's open to the public, and it's at the State Library and the Ohioana Library. And so that's my commercial about Ohioana. I have been just thrilled to be part of the Read Aloud. And three years ago, when Donna and I were looking at dates, it was like, we probably have in central Ohio the best romance writers in the country. So let's involve the romance writers for the Valentine's uh, week of the Read Aloud. So we've been doing this now for three years. And... The statement is that Donna is a member of the Central Ohio Society of Fiction Writers, but there's also a subcategory, is this correct? You're part of the National Romance Writers.
2: Yes, National
1: Romance Writers of America. She's much better at knowing all of the things. I tried to combine the two, and the editor told me I couldn't do that. Donna has uh, been celebrated... um, with all of her books. And she read last year, and we all kind of giggled because her books are a bit seductive, and we didn't know what she was going to read. And she really gave us an education because there's so much more behind writing a book as far as knowing the history and the evolution, as well as the fun of creating the characters. So today, Donna is going to be reading from two of her books. Um,
2: well, I wasn't too sure what I was going to read it. so I'm going to read, I'm going to read from The Trouble
1: with Moonlight. Well, The Trouble with Moonlight, I hope she'll read from, because it is a finalist for the National... Roman- <clears throat>
2: Romantic Times Book Reviews Historical Love and Laughter Award. <laughs> There's only four... Four people up for it. And so
1: she will be finding out in April in Orlando if she's going to be uh, winning that award. And we're going to hope that we get the first email to find out that she, she did. And otherwise, it's up to Donna what she chooses to read from. She has a new book coming out, and maybe she'll give us a peek of that. But Donna by day is a CPA, and this is a busy time for her with tax time so we appreciate you being here to share with us. Donna Mae Beans. You know, I wasn't sure she was inviting me here
2: for Valentine's Day week. I thought maybe because it's uh, Lincoln's birthday she was looking for old. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear it was for, uh, for romance. Um, I am a CPA, I graduated from Ohio State, uh, Fisher College of Business. Not bad for a, an accounting graduate right? To write romance. I've been writing romance. I wrote romance for 10 years before I got published. It's a long haul. Now, my first book was The Education of Mrs. Brimley. And it's a very sexy book. But I want to tell you a little bit. I'm not going to read from this this, this time. But it's important I tell you a little bit about this book to kind of frame the trouble with Moonlight. When, when I wrote this book, I had a specific editor in mind. Is there anybody here that is working on a book? Because you're in for a rough haul. This might help a little bit in the motivation side. But when I wrote The Education, Mrs. Brimley, it's very sexy. It's, it's uh, very funny, historical. And I thought, the market is going to want this. You know, I wouldn't have any problem selling it. But as I was amassing the rejection letters, I kept on thinking there was this one editor that I thought would be interested in this book. And I had met her in October. She was here in Columbus. And she held up a book. It was by Lisa Klepes, who's another historical author who writes humorous historicals. And she said, bring me a book like this, and I'll buy it. This is what I'm looking for. And I thought, yes. She's going to want my book. And I submitted to her. She asked for the full. I found out this was a finalist in a big contest, and I thought I emailed her to let her know, just waiting for that acceptance letter. And I got a letter from her, but it was a rejection letter. And it said, As much as I disliked the premise of your book when I first heard it, There were some nice things about it. and She proceeded to talk about characterization and dialogue and and things like that. And the last sentence said, unfortunately, it's not right for us at this time. I still got hung up on that as much as I disliked the premise. This is basically um, a Victorian striptease. That's what the book is. And I thought, she must think or she must be receiving a lot of these books with a similar kind of a premise, and that this wasn't fresh enough, this wasn't different enough. And I think there must be stages that one goes through when you get a rejection, kind of like grieving a death. First, you're very maudlin, because this one really hit me in the gut, and and you're you're just kind of weepy and depressed. And then you get angry. And when I got angry, I started looking around and thinking, well, what can I write, you know, that will just be rejection-proof? Because darn it, I know I'm a decent writer. That must be the subject. And I came up with this idea that I turned into the book called The Trouble with Moonlight. It's the story of an invisible heroine. She turns invisible in moonlight, she can't help it, it just happens. And it's just her, not her clothes. And as I had done all this research, aha, I did mention I write sexy books, right? Um, I had done all this research on the Victorian period, and I thought, well, this will fit perfectly in for the Victorian period. So it became a historical paranormal. Now, about, I got very excited. I love this book. I had so much fun writing this book. But about four months after I started, I ended up winning that big national award. It was called the Golden Heart Award. For historical. A month later, I had an offer by an editor uh, from Dorchester Publishing, a New York uh, publisher. Before I accepted, and I was thrilled to get that offer, after 10 years, someone wanted my book. But I didn't accept it. I called an agent that I had been talking to. We had been playing phone tag back and forth, and I told her, and she said, I can do better. I can get you a read by St. Martin's. Give me 24 hours. And in 24 hours, I had an offer from St. Martin's for the book. I'm dancing around in my living room. Just me and the dog, you know? (laughs) Because everyone else was gone. Um, And I told the agent, that's fantastic. But you know, there's one other publisher that has the full of this manuscript. And I don't think she's really interested in it. She didn't seem exactly enthusiastic when I... uh, Pitched it to her, but common courtesy, you have to let them know that an offer's on the table. And she contacted her, and she made an offer for the book. And now my book's up in an auction with two big publishing companies bidding over who's going to have the rights to publish it. And it ended up being the editor that I thought wasn't interested in the book. She's the one that ended up buying it. So this is comes, came out with Berkeley. The editor has since told me she doesn't like to show her enthusiasm because she doesn't think it's fair if she later rejects the people. So keep that in mind. If you're in the process of promoting yourself and you're not getting the response you're anticipating, you may be getting that response. It's just the person is kind of holding back. So that was my first book. And that is followed by this one is the sequel to the education of Mrs. Brimley. It's called Seduction of a Duke. It's coming out in April. If you have read this book and you've fallen in love with the characters, uh, Nicholas and Emma, they do return in this book, in the back half of the book. And this this was a wild ride. I had a lot of fun with this one as well. And I did bring something to read from it towards the end if we have time. You know, I had a hard time figuring out what books I was going to read from. And, and what a dilemma to have, you know? I think that's so great. Not too long ago, you know, I, I had no um, I decided to read from this one because the opening, to me, was like watching a movie. I can just see it on film. And I thought that perhaps this would work for you, too. Plus, it's not very sexy, so I think it works for a public reading. One of the things that I did... Uh, before writing this book, is I attended a, a lot of screenwriting workshops, and I employed a lot of the screenwriting techniques in crafting the beginning of the book, so perhaps that lends to the the film like feeling of it I hope, um, but you can see if you can spot some of the some of the things what the The main emphasis when you start off a book is to get the people that are reading it to uh, really like the characters, to start rooting for the characters, to want to see them succeed. So, see if you can spot the things that I put in there purposefully to make you really feel for these characters and want to see them do well. Now, all my books are out in paperback. They also are all coming out in uh, hardback through Rhapsody Book Club, and uh, the print's bigger. And uh, I'm old, I admit it. It's easier for me to read larger prints. So, The Trouble with Moonlight, it's set in London in 1877. If his life, along with those of so many agents faithful to the Crown, didn't hang in the balance, James Locke knew that he would turn and escape Lord Pembroke's study as silently as he had entered. This mission, however, demanded his legendary skill at cracking safes, a skill unfortunately more myth than reality. The narrow, stuffy room, seeped in darkness, opened before him much like a tomb. He shuddered, reminding himself he wasn't in a hellhole prison cell. Not this time. Paying no heed to this cold sweat drenching his linen shirt, he looked for a window, knowing he couldn't risk opening it, but needing to know one existed all the same. Thick curtains hung on the wall to his right, swallowing a bit of the desperation he pretended to ignore. He parted the heavy velvet to allow bright moonlight access. The flood of soft ethereal light revealed a Milner holdfast floor safe near the desk. By his calculations he had little more than 1 hour before the servants would be roused to welcome their employer back from the gambling hells. Kneeling before the hinged black door, he slipped the skeleton key and a holding lever into the narrow slot letting the delicate tips of his fingers register the lift of a tumbler. Twice the slight tremor in his hand caused the liver to slip, forcing him to start the process from the beginning. He cursed silently, but knew he couldn't abandon the safe, not with so much at stake. Finally, the lock clicked, and he allowed himself the luxury of a deep breath of relief before turning the latch and swinging open the heavy iron door. Inside, a series of small compartments held the valuable treasures Lord Pembroke believed secure. James checked each methodically moving from the top down, searching for the list of British operatives uh, that had presumably fallen into the wrong hands. Just as he had examined the last drawer, the sound of light footsteps in the hall caught his ear. Damn! He carefully closed the safe door, but did not turn the latch as the sound of resetting tumblers might signal his presence. He slipped behind the velvet draperies, hoping the footsteps would pass by. But no, they stopped. Holding his breath, James peeked through the gap in the heavy panels. The door to the study opened, then closed. Footsteps softly padded across the thick Persian carpet, hesitated, then continued in the direction of the safe. James (coughs) James squinted <coughs> through the narrow opening but saw no one. Mystified he carefully pushed a small measure of the dusty velvet aside to give greater visibility knowing one's opponents could be as valuable as locating the elusive list but no one appeared to be in the room. How could that be? The heavy safe door slowly swung back. One by one the compartment drawers slid open then closed. Stunned, James watched a jewelry case from one of the drawers levitate and hover in midair. Logically, he knew there had to be some explanation for the unbelievable event transpiring before him, but his eyes provided none, and no flute-playing Indian faker had suddenly taken residence in the study. The jewelry case opened, and a necklace of finely cut rubies escaped from its housing, flashing blood red in the moonlight. The empty case returned to the drawer and the drawer slid into the safe the heavy safe door swung back on its hinges and the latch turned all without benefit of a human hand had he been cold so- had he not been cold sober james would think he was deep in his cups were his eyes playing tricks or was some fiendish jest afoot his nose pushed further into the drapery unsettling the accumulated dust James fought the tickle deep in his nostrils. His eyes burned and watered, yet he followed the necklace's silent flight across the room. As it passed the desk, corners of scattered papers lifted briefly as if in silent salute. An unusual scent, foreign to that of the study's wood polish and book leather, floated on a stirred current. What the devil? He couldn't restrain the sneeze any longer. He tried to swallow the sound, but a strangled crump escaped beyond his best efforts. The necklace swung momentarily in his direction. He heard a swift intake of air, almost feminine in nature, then rapid footfalls to the door. The study door flew open. The necklace darted through. Wait, James called in a hissing whisper. Fool, as if a necklace had ears to listen. He dashed from his hiding place in quick pursuit of what he wasn't sure, but he was determined to find out. He followed both the sound of running footfalls and the lingering scent of a sweet floral scent down the hall. No time to think about that now. The heavy jewels bounced and swayed in their flight toward the kitchen, then flew in a high arc around a corner. James followed, his hasty exit generating far more noise than his earlier entrance, his heart pounding as if he were the fox and not the hound. The kitchen doorknob turned before the wooden door opened. The necklace flew into the night. A gasp to his right warned James that he was not alone. He glanced at a wide-eyed scullery maid whose open mouth and frigid polarises suggested she wasn't, he wasn't the only one witnessing a flying necklace fleeing the household. Even with her validation, he still wasn't sure he believed what his own eyes told him to be true. The necklace proved w- even more elusive in the dark. Only the chance spark of moonlight reflecting on the jewels allowed him to follow in shadow. He had spooked the necklace once. He didn't intend to do it again. Dashing from hedge to tree to bush, he silently pursued the strand of jewels through the back garden to a waiting brougham. It was an older model, but obviously serviceable. The door opened, and the carriage body sagged as if a passenger had boarded, but not but the jewelry entered. The driver clicked the horses forward. Without hesitation, James raced for the back of the brougham. even though his own hack waited around the corner. He caught a handhold on the edge of the moving conveyance and braced his feet on the fenders above the spinning wheel axles so that he was tenuously attached to the back end like some overgrown street urchin. After several minutes and near fatal turns, the carriage slowed and Locke dropped off. He dashed across the street to a park to avoid detection and to allow the blood to flow back into his whitened fingers. Although he attempted to appear unobtrusive, his gaze clearly focused on the brougham. The driver hopped down and rushed to open the carriage door. Although he half expected to see a necklace fly from the carriage and up the townhouse steps, a widow emerged from the depths of the brougham, A young widow at that, judging from her pleasing waist and saucy bustle. A jet black recticule with a bulging bottom swung from her wrist. James smiled in spite of himself, imagining a fat ruby necklace nestled inside. He strained to see beneath the black lace veil but that contoured a narrow face with distinctive cheekbones. But she was either too distant or the lace too dense. How did she do it? He hadn't seen a woman anywhere near the Pembroke study. One had to admire such talent, even if it was used for common thievery. She mounted the steps toward a townhouse door framed with blooming white flowers. Odd to see flowers blooming at this hour, he mused before dismissing the thought. The widow paused, then turned to look straight at him as if she knew he'd be there. He should turn away, play the role of a drunken sot stumbling down the pavement. But instead he remained rooted to the spot. He raised his left arm as if to tip his hat, but then he remembered he left that in his waiting carriage at Pembroke's residence. She quickly turned and entered the house. What to do now? He was tempted to storm the house and demand to know how she had palmed the necklace. However, storming a widow's home at such a disrespectful hour might raise a bit of unwanted attention. Better to observe the mysterious widow, make a few inquiries and discover where her allegiances lay before making any rash moves. A welcome breeze surrounded him with the strange floral fragrance he noted earlier. He took a deep breath, reliving the fascinating memory of all he didn't see in the study. The widow's techniques would certainly make her a formidable spy. That gave him pause. He glanced back up at the residence, noting the address. It shouldn't be difficult to gather a bit of information about her tomorrow, once the working world was about. He noted a shift at the draperies, then turned to retrace the path to Lord Pembroke's house, where his own carriage waited. How did it go, dear? Aunt Eugenia asked. Lucinda Havenshaw hurried to the front window to peek out between the drapes. The lacy veil obscured her vision, but she didn't dare move it until she was certain. Someone saw me tonight. Oh dear. Her aunt, a thickened bespeckled and older version of Lucinda herself, hurried to the window to add her scrutiny to the street. Were you followed? I'm not certain. Lucinda tugged at her black gloves. I had thought I had lost him once I reached the outside of the house, but there was a strange man on the pavement just now. I think he was watching me. She removed her hat and veil and tossed them to the well-worn settee. The grandfather clock in the corner chimed two bells. Aunt Eugenia readjusted the draperies before turning toward her niece. She gasped. Dear heavens, I don't suppose I'll ever become accustomed to seeing you like that. Lucinda smiled, although she knew no one could see it. She had peeked at a mirror once when she was in full phase. Viewing the headless dress reflected there had shocked even herself. She had avoided mirrors while in phase ever since. She opened her recticule and retrieved the beautiful ruby necklace she had liberated from Pembroke's safe. Mrs. Farthington will be happy to see we reclaimed her necklace. I hope she can keep it out of the hands of her foolish husband this time. I hope she doesn't. Aunt Eugenia took the necklace from Lucinda's invisible hand to store in their parlor safe, hidden beneath the chintz tablecloth. She lifted the flowery fabric and inserted an ornately carved key into the exposed keyhole. "'We make more money if he gambles it away. "'A woman on her own can never have enough money, dear, "'especially with the four mouths to feed "'and a household to run.'" "'Cinda?' Lucinda turned quickly to see her younger sister, Rhea, in the hallway. The sight of the eight-year-old clutching a bedraggled, velveteen kitten brought a smile to her lips. "'I'm here, my sweet. "'But I can't see you,' the little one said with a yawn. "'The child's lament,' pulled at Lucinda's heart. It was bad enough Rhea would never know her own mother, and then to add a sometimes invisible sister to the situation must certainly lead to insecurities. Thank heavens Rhea had Portia, the normal sister, and Aunt Eugenia to turn to on moonlit nights. Lucinda swooped the sleepy-eyed child into her arms while her aunt hastily closed the family safe. "'You can feel me all around you,' she nuzzled the top with a little blonde head. "'Why aren't you in bed?' She cast a disapproving glance at her aunt, but of course her aunt was oblivious to her expression. "'I had a bad dream,' the child reached up and touched her face. "'I thought you were gone.' "'The moon is full and the stars are awake,' Lucinda kissed Rhea's fingers. "'Go back to bed, sweet angel, and tomorrow morning you'll see me just fine.' Come on, little miss, I'll see you back to bed. Aunt Eugenia patted the child on the back. The little girl puckered her lips in a kiss while Lucinda moved her cheek to meet them. Good night, Cinda. Rhea clenched the ear of her bedraggled kitten that proceeded to climb the stairs using both hands and feet. Your blessed mother would be proud of the way you've taken care of the girls, Eugenia said as she passed by Lucinda. So am I. Thank you, Auntie. I guess that would be Auntie. Eugenia's appreciation of her efforts warmed her like a welcome cup of tea. She stooped to kiss her aunt's cheek as well. But as the older woman couldn't see her, Eugenia continued by without pausing to retrieve the affectionate tribute. Lucinda's pursed lips met only air. A familiar jab of frustration stabbed at her, reminding her of the loneliness that went hand in hand with her unique ability. She had no choice but to accept her fate. She sighed. Anger couldn't change what God had made. Better to concentrate on providing for her family, which brought her thoughts back to tonight. Lucinda doused the oil lamps on the mantel and the gas jets on the wall before returning to the parlor window. She'd been spotted. Consequences always followed a sighting. At best, the rumors of ghosts and headless horsemen would resurface. At worst, they would meet they would need once again to find a new home. What would it be like to schedule one's existence according to the, to not schedule one's existence according to the phases of the moon? To not constantly worry about being labeled the devil's child or a witch? Perhaps she was being too vigilant. Perhaps there was nothing to worry about. Still, an uneasiness settled heavy about her heart. So it goes on and, and uh, he decides to try and make her become a spy. And he still doesn't know how it is she managed to, capture, to get that necklace. So he sets a trap. We have time. I wasn't sure we'd have enough time to read the sexy part. They're not too bad. I save that for later. You know, one of the problems, one of the problems with, with writing um, the kind of books that I do is that I send them to my brothers. Now, I have two older brothers. One's a two-star general in the army, and the other one is a, a salesman who kind of thinks he's the patriarch of the family. And they read the books, and I'm very nervous about you know, what they're going to think of their younger sister writing such stuff. And I got an email from my oldest brother. Now, my husband, I've been married for 35 years, an old married lady, um, is kind of quiet. I'm the one that does all the chattering about in the house. And so my brother sent an email, and he said, Donna, it's obvious that Rick is a man of few words, but great action. (laughs) Anyway, let's see if we do this from here. Um, what, What John does is he hires... Lucinda, who doesn't think of herself as a thief, she's a recoverer er. if someone is so foolish as to lose their jewelry or misplace an item, they come and they get her and, and she'll get it back for you no matter where it is, but it's got to be Dory in a full moon and she's got to be naked to be invisible. And so um, John hires her and they need the money, so he hires her to retrieve a watch. And so he's told her the house where it can be found. He makes up a story surrounding why he needs this watch, which is his back. Uh, And so she goes and she breaks into the house. The pocket watch wasn't difficult to find. In fact, the moment she opened the door to the library, a glint of moonlight flashed on the engraved gold where it rested on the desk. The lid was open as if someone had just checked the hour, but the desk chair was empty, and no light other than that from a single window behind the desk illuminated the room. Her sense of smell never worked quite as well when she was in full phase, but she recognized the scent of candle wax, peat, and something else, something familiar, but out of place. She hesitated, caution suggesting she turn and flee. Still, the watch beckoned so close at hand. She only need to grab it and go. She glanced quickly about the room, not able to see deep into the shadowy corners. The current owner was probably asleep in his bed, unaware that a stranger had penetrated his domicile. She stepped over to the desk, picked up the watch, and gently closed the lid. However, before she could take two steps toward the door, something fell from the ceiling, wrapping her in thick, heavy ropes. A trap! Panicked, she dropped the watch and ran, but her legs tangled in the foul-smelling webbing. She lost her balance and fell to the carpet. Her worst fears realized she fought the knotted ropes pressing into her tender skin. She choked back a cry, pulling at the heavy threads, seeking an end to the encompassing snare. A match struck and yellowish light filled the room. I hadn't expected you quite so soon, but I'm glad you came tonight. She gasped, recognizing the low, mesmerizing voice. Mr. Langtree? He used an alias. Her gaze swept the freshly illuminated corner. He had exchanged the unfashionable tweeds for more appropriate evening attire. The bushy mustache and eyebrows had disappeared as well as the thickness cluttering up his middle. But the eyes, those intelligent assessing eyes, those were the same. His lips now free of the burdens of mustache lifted in a superior sneer. Her initial fear hardened to anger. The devious son of a cur. Once she escaped from this stinking fishnet, she would cause havoc on his person every moonlit night for the rest of his life. She jerked the biting ropes out from under her and tried to slide beneath them to the side. Surprised, James glanced quickly around the room. He heard her voice, but where could she be hiding? And how did she control this writhing, unnatural entity trapped by the ropes? Miss Havishaw? He advanced into the center of the room, searching the areas that still clung to the shadows. You can come out now. The net undulated with the shifting form beneath. Amazing. He could see straight through the wave of movement, clear to the other side. How do you do it, he asked, his awe evident even to his own ear. There's no thread or wire. I can't see a thing, even in the light. There was no answer, no reply the bulge in the net slowly rolled toward the side, approaching imminent escape. Without hesitation, he sprawled on the wave, overpowering it with the weight of his body. We'll have none of that, he said, feeling it struggle beneath him, not until my questions are answered. Lord, that sweet, exotic scent fairly surrounded him, overpowering even the rancid scent of the ropes. Miss Havishaw must be near He grasped one of the smaller ripples and discovered something that felt a bit like bone. Get off of me, you lying deceitful blackguard! The hot breath of her curses burned his neck, bringing with it the realization that Miss Havishaw did not control the creature. She was the creature. The delicious discovery both stunned and thrilled. She thrashed beneath him, not an entirely unpleasant sensation. Arousing thoughts of this she similarly trapped in his bed caused him to momentarily forget the purpose of the encounter. However, a rope knot pressing into his increasing sensitive groin brought him round. I'm not going to hurt you, Miss Havishaw. He moved his hand to the spot he approximated to be her shoulder. Instead of a fabric-bound collarbone, his fingers pressed into a soft, warm mound with a fleshy peak that extended between the ropes. She gasped and instantly stilled. All his senses turned to the fingertips that circled and explored the pebbling peak. His groin tightened, not needing to see what his fingertips instantly recognized. Take your hand off my breast, Mr. Langtree. You're naked, he said, his body responding with acute awareness and tantalizing pressure. Common sense whispered that he should withdraw his hand, but sense, common or not, abandoned him. Her lungs expanded against his chest as she gulped for air, driving the enticing nub deeper into his palm. Her position suggested her hips, naked hips, would be perfectly situated for penetration. His hardening manhood signaled it was up to the task. Sweet heavens, if only he could see her to tell if desire swept through her features the same way it played havoc with his. If only a quick blow to his privates ended all thought. He groaned and rolled to the side, curled in a ball like a babe. Anyway, (laughs) he ends up blackmailing her into learning how to crack safes and helping him in his endeavors. But it's really a fun book. Now, this one, this is the galleys. When you are publishing, after you do your edits, You get something called the galleys, and they are printed pages of the book as they will appear. They look like this. So it's like a printed page, only it's it's not bound in a cover. And I haven't gotten the bound versions yet, so I thought I'd just use the galleys to read you a little bit of the book that's coming out in April. Now, let me tell you about the book that's coming out in April. I have a niece that got married, and she held the wedding in uh, Rhode Island at Newport Beach, and if you've ever been to Newport, this was my first, it is amazing. This was the playground of the rich back in the Gilded Age, the Vanderbilts and the, oh gee, all the, all the monopolies, the people would go there for the summer. It was close to New York, they could hop on a ferry and, and get there, and they would have these houses, they were Gorgeous, huge mansions that they only lived in for like six weeks out of the year. I mean, the wealth is just incredible. And if you go there now, you could kind of tour. A lot of the houses have been restored. Um, Many of them were damaged through the Depression years and housed several families uh, for a while and had other damage. Uh, But the historical society up there has purchased them and are or bringing them back to their former glory, but they do take your breath away that someone would only live there for six months, or six weeks. And of course, that was only one of their residences. They usually had one in New York, and uh, the Vanderbilts especially had one also in the woods, and uh, they're all over. Um, Another nice one to go see is down in Asheville, South Carolina, North Carolina, one of the Carolinas, um, which is one of the, the younger Vanderbilt bachelor built that magnificent house. I've been there as well. Um, I based the story on Consuelo Vanderbilt. Now, Consuelo was born into money, and her mother was a very manipulative, conniving mother who wanted to have society's blessing and move into the upper echelons of society. It wasn't enough to be extremely rich. You had to have the history, the background behind you. And Alva didn't come from, uh, she came from an upper middle class type of a background, not the kind of money that she had now. So she decided that her daughter would be the way for her to be accepted by society. And she wanted her daughter to marry into a title. And if she had a title, then she was sure that she could be accepted. People would want her to come to their parties. So she would do things like when Consuelo was little, she made Consuelo wear a back brace for years, even though there was no medical need to do so. And the whole purpose was so that her daughter would have perfect posture. She kept her bedroom very sparse because the odds were that her daughter might live in a castle and she might as well become accustomed to that kind of living. And she did, everything was for Alva, not for her little girl. So I used Consuelo as kind of a model for my character, whose name is Francesca. Now, Alva did get her wish. Consuelo did marry the Duke of Marlborough, who was desperate for money. You know, over in England, they have also these huge manor, homes, estates, and it takes a lot of money to keep those things up. And if you are of the wealthy class, you don't really work for a living. You get tenants, uh, your tenant farmers pay you, and a lot of times you don't get enough money in to justify the outpouring. So he needed money, and he came to America, like many of the uh, manor holders of that time did, came to America to find a wealthy heiress to marry. And they did get married, and Consuelo did produce the heir and the spare that she was uh, kind of had to. And then they got divorced, because it was not a love match. In my book, I have a similar situation. Um, The Duke of Bedford, which, by the way, is the school that my husband went to, a high school up in Cleveland. He went to Bedford. I thought it sounded British, so I used it. Little did I know it was going to come back to haunt me. There really is a uh, Duke of Bedford, um, and I had to be very careful not to make any kind of association with him whatsoever. Um, And, uh, anyway, but the Duke of Bedford is coming over and he's looking for uh, a rich wife. And uh, and Alva sees this as as her opportunity. So, forget what year. 18, I think this is in 1877. And we're in Newport Beach, Rhode Island. Oh, I should mention that this is chapter one. I did start out with a prologue once again. I write a sexy book and the sexy premise of this book is that although this is a marriage of convenience, the Duke is wondering how it is that this woman is not married already. I mean, she's got all the money in the world. She's attractive. And he's coming over and the mother is pushing this wedding to occur within a short period of time. And why would that be? And He decides she must be pregnant. She must need a husband because she's pregnant. And they're going to try and pass this off on him, which is okay because he's getting enough money for this illegitimate child. He's getting enough money to raise, raise the child that he's willing to do that. But he wants to know, is this child his or is it someone else's? And of course, at that time, you can't do DNA testing. There's only one way he can be sure that the child is his, and that is not to consummate the marriage until she starts to show. And when it's obvious that she's pregnant, then they can have the discussion about uh, you know, what this is going to mean and, and, and whatnot. But he can't trust her to tell him the truth, so he's going to hold off. All right. Meanwhile, my heroine, who really does not want to get married, she does not want to marry this guy, and she certainly doesn't want to move to England, I mean, she has lived a life of luxury. The houses that were built in America have all the latest advances. The houses that she's going to live in in England were built centuries ago. They don't have central heating. They light by candlesticks, not gas jets. And she has these fabulous clothes that she's going to have to hide under shawls. And that's why when you see those PBS things, all the women are huddled under shawls. There's no central heating. Um, and, and she doesn't want to do that. So she doesn't want to go there. She certainly doesn't want to live there long. So she goes to her father, who has always gotten her out of problems before, and says, save me from this. Get me out of this. And he says, no. I want grandchildren. <laughs> Darn it, I have waited for you to get married. You haven't done it. I want grandchildren. If this is what it's going to take, then you go ahead and and, and we'll put this marriage through. And she's like, but I'm going to have to move to England. I'm going to be gone. You'll never see me again. And he said, well, you know, I did negotiate one clause in the marriage contract, and that says that all children, and I did find that this was true, that this clause did exist in some of them. All children born of this marriage are to be educated back here in the States. Because if I'm paying for this marriage, if I'm sending you big allowances and whatnot, I am not going to have grandchildren that are going to look down their hoity-toity little British noses at their grandfather who's in trade. I want them you know, to appreciate all that you know, I have built up in this country. So they're going to be educated here. And naturally, the mother can accompany you know, the children back to be educated. Who would deny her that? So my advice to you is if you want to get back to this country, you get pregnant as soon as possible. So that's what she is trying to seduce, the Duke, and the Duke is trying to hold her back, all right? Seduction of the Duke, April. (laughs) Okay, I had to start out. I had that sexy premise, but when you talk about... You want to give the reader in the first chapter an idea of what's going to come, a sense of the book. But with an arranged marriage, that doesn't necessarily have a very sexy kind of, um, you know, a feel to it. So I put a (laughs) prologue in to let the reader know that later on in the book, it's going to get hot. And the way that I did that is I put in the prologue that my heroine is really in love with somebody else, but he's not moving fast enough for her needs. And so while they're in Paris, she visits her old French tutor and gets a courtesan's diary, gets a book on how the courtesan managed to seduce. And she has this book in her uh, arsenal to use, but she had intended to use it for someone else. Okay, we're in Newport Beach with all the malice she could muster, Francesca Winthrop whacked the wooden croquet ball beneath her foot, sending her mother's ball careening across the manicured lawn, over the edge of the Newport Cliffs, and possibly into the blue-gray waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Pity it wasn't her mother's head.
1: Yeah.
2: Really, Francesca, that show of spirit was entirely unnecessary. Alva Winthrop singled one of the dozens of ser- servants standing about for just... Such a purpose, to search for the ball at the rocky base of the cliff before feigning laughter for the benefit of the other society matriarchs watching the match. Most women would be positively thrilled to learn they were about to marry a duke. Most women have at least met the man they are to marry or had a say in the selection, Fran replied, careful to keep her voice low and her smile in place. Never show emotion or else risk the scorn that follows." She'd been fed those words in infancy along with her pablum. An only child raised in the lonely edifice to enormous wealth, she learned her lessons well. A tear, a stutter in public earned her a slap across the face from her mother in private. Thus to the others in the game, Francesca Winthrop maintained a calm facade. Deep inside, however, she screamed her protest. I won't do this, Mama. She glanced away, bracing herself for her mother's anticipated Reprimand. I'm, I'm in love with someone else. Nonsense. Alva smoothed her hands over her white mus- muslin skirts. Love has little to do with the stewardship of great families. Get to the right page. You've known since birth that your destiny was to bring a title to the Winthrops. With your father's money and your husband's title, your new husband's title, you'll be received into the best households on both continents. No, Mama. With the influence of your new son-in-law, you'll be the one received in those best households, Fran said, trying to ignore the stabbing pain caused by her mother's lack of consideration. Yet it had always been that way. Her opinion in matters of her own future were insignificant. Reality constricted her throat, making words difficult. I shall be the one tied to a man I don't know and whom I don't love. We all make sacrifices, dear. You'll learn to adopt. He'll arrive in two days. We'll announce your engagement at the costume ball this Saturday. Three days? Her mother had been planning that ball for two months, and Fran had been dreading it for at least as long. Now she would not only have to find the fortitude to face a room full of people, but an unfamiliar fiancé as well. Dread as hard and solid as one of her painted croquet balls fisted into a tight knot in her stomach. An errant honeybee buzzed Alva's hat, perhaps mistaking one of the silk roses for the real thing. Alva waved a gloved hand to chase it away. I don't know why you insist on maintaining those ridiculous beehives. I certainly won't miss them when you move to London. London? Fran hadn't quite digested news of her imminent engagement before encountering this second cannon folly she'd have to move to london and live among total strangers the comfortable solitude that she'd maintained her entire life would vanish the knot in her stomach leapt to her rib cage inhibiting breath she was dizzy lightheaded alva squinted disapproval toward fran for a moment then shifted her gaze her face brightening look simpson has found my ball i'll just go and see to its proper placement fran foist, forced words past her constricted throat they emerged in a harsh whisper, a testament to the unexpected blow dealt to her future. Why now, Mama? You must have known of this earlier. Why not wait to tell me in private? Alva Winthrop stopped and turned, her gaze stern and sharp. Do try to aim for the wickets, dear. It's the winning that matters, not the course one takes to get there. Nasty. anyway, That'll be the one that comes out in April. So, are there any questions that I can answer? I do taxes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. What now, Linda? Donna, <laughs> Donna. Well, how many Donna, Donna. other books
1: do you have planned? I know there's usually manuscripts
2: or thoughts floating around. Oh, I and should. Well, I plan to write as many as I can keep (laughs) selling, I guess. I should mention, I do have another book coming out in June. And this one is um, a short story, and it's in an anthology. Um, All the stories in the anthology deal with animals, pets. And all the proceeds of the book, well, at least all the profits, all my proceeds, all the royalties and the advances of all the authors are going to a no-kill animal uh, foundation. So that one's called Tales of Love, and Tales is T A I L S. Tales of Love. Um, it has two New York Times bestselling authors. Uh, one is Laurie Foster, who's in Cincinnati. Another member, Ohio Anna member, and uh, total of ten authors in total. Some of the other ones are also here. Yeah, yeah, Diane Castell and Marcia James and Patricia Sargent are also all Ohio members in the book. So watch for that in June because it's going for a good cause. Um, as to your other question, I, you know, now here's the bad news. I went to San Francisco uh, last fall for a Romance Writers' Convention. Romance Writers of America is the largest Professional writing organization that also takes unpublished authors into its fold. So, although it is geared towards romance, we have authors that write everything because it gives you an access for editors and agents and workshops on writing. Because good writing is good writing, you know, whether it's um, suspense or or a, a romance or or just a mystery. Um, But I went to that one in San Francisco last fall, and I met my editor and my agent. And I have the sequel to The Trouble with Moonlight already all plotted out. And I'm ready to write it. I was looking forward to write it. It was my carrot to write this book, to finish The Seduction of the Duke, so I could get going on the sequel to The Trouble with Moonlight. And the first thing my editor said uh, when we sat down is, I don't want to see a sequel to The Trouble with Moonlight. And again, my heart just fell. Um, She said two things. One is she wasn't too fond of one of the characters who would become the heroine for the sequel. Uh, And I'm like, but she changes. By the end of the book, she has changed. But that didn't seem to do any good. And the second concern she had is that historical paranormal does not sell as well as straight historicals. Now, I'm hoping that word of mouth will spread about the trouble with Moonlight and um, she will turn that decision around but right now that's the way it stands. And it just, I kind of took it personally that she must just hate this book or not like that, which is silly because she wouldn't have bought it if she hated the book. But um, I took it personally. And I, I don't know if I even heard too much of the rest of that discussion. Well, when you go to one of these conventions, you end up with a lot of books that you need to ship back home. You can't pack them in your uh, suitcase anymore, (laughs) like that would happen, um, to get on the plane. So you have to ship them back. And I went down to the hotel and back on the shipping receiving dock to find an appropriate box. As part of this convention, they have a huge book signing. I think it's like 500 authors. So there's a lot of boxes of books that have been brought in. So I found an empty box. And I'm walking down the long hallway in the guts of this hotel. And I happen to notice that there's writing on the flap of the box. Somebody's written something in pen on the box. And I look at it and it says, contemporary paranormals sell much better than historical paranormals. And I'm thinking, is this God? talking to me through a box flap I mean you know I looked at the box is it my publisher's box it's it's another publisher it's another historical book that was shipped in but it's another publisher entirely so I think that more than anything told me this is an industry wisdom this is uh, uh, just something that's kind of permeating the industry right now that historical paranormals don't have the audience that contemporary paranormals do I'm hoping that'll change. I'm hoping that, you know, not too long ago, vampires. Nobody was buying books with vampires. Now, it's like a mark of an author. You have to have a vampire book in your repertoire. Um, So I'm hoping that maybe this will change and that uh, they'll go back to, they'll allow me to do the sequel to, which is called, will be called, The Trouble with Touch, Um, when that one, when that, period goes by, then I'm allowed to write that one again. Meanwhile, I'm writing another story that's connected to the education of Mrs. Brimley. Um, If you have read the education of Mrs. Brimley, you'll know the Chambers family consisted of two sons and a daughter. Nicholas, the subject of the education of Mrs. Brimley, was the middle son. He had an older brother, William, who became the Duke of Bedford and the seduction of Duke. But there's a daughter, and she's very rarely mentioned, a sister, very rarely mentioned. Uh, She is mentioned a little bit more in um, Seduction of a Duke. And although I hadn't planned to tell her story, I had planned to tell the story of an adopted child from the education of Mrs. Brimley and carry that one forward. My agent said, you know, I, I like your premise for this adopted child, but now after reading... Seduction of a Duke, I'm really curious about that sister. So I'm working on the sister's story right now. Um, and then I have the adopted daughter. And uh, we'll see. I, I also have a time travel I'm kind of working on. And fortunately, the time travel is going, because time travel is getting like a special dispensation, apparently, in this historical paranormal thing. But my time travel takes a, a woman from 1855 and throws her into modern-day New Orleans. And I'll tell you how she gets there. Anybody Has anybody been to New Orleans? Great city. There's a restaurant called The Court of Two Sisters. And if you go to that restaurant, there's two ways to get in. One is off of Royal Street, and you have to go through a long hallway. And the other one is coming off of uh, Bourbon Street, you can just walk right into the garden. But if you take that one off Royal Street and you go down that long hallway, at the end of the hallway, before you go into the restaurant, there are these iron gates, filigree gates, against the wall. And there's a wooden sign hanging on them. And it says that these are the charm gates. And that Queen Elizabeth the first or the second, I forget who. One of one of the Elizabeths. Isabella, Queen Isabella. Bless these gates in Spain so that whoever grasps them will get charm. Okay? I have a picture of me holding on to these gates so I could prove to my husband, yes, I have charm. <laughs> See? It came through. But after I had been to New Orleans, I was listening to a tape, a workshop tape, and there was a speaker. I can't think of her name, but she lives in Baltimore, Maryland and she was saying that as a writer you look at the world differently I know that before I started writing I used to paint and I know that painters also look at the world differently they look at a tree and they just see it totally differently than you would just passing by so you look at the world differently and there are things out there in the world that will speak to you as a writer that are, are meant for you as a writer to see so think back on your trip, in this case New Orleans, what was it in this trip that spoke to you and will inspire a story? And it was these gates. To me, it was these gates. So my story is this. I have Queen, at first I was going to have Queen Isabella channel through someone who had touched the, I was going to use a lawyer. I hope there's no lawyers here. But I couldn't think of a person more devoid of charm than a a lawyer. So I thought I'd have a lawyer grasp these gates and start channeling someone who was very charming as a result. As a result. But I started to do research on Queen Isabella, and she was not a nice person. She was uh, like to have her affair. She was married to a guy who was gay. So I guess she could be forgiven. She was a very sensual woman. And so she started choosing young clerics to have her affairs with. She was very promiscuous. She had some sort of a skin condition that was kind of scaly on her arms. And um, yeah, it's just she was just kind of nasty. She became a queen at a very young age uh, as a child. And um, I just couldn't see putting that personality into a heroine. But I figured someone like that really needed a charm teacher. So that's what my heroine was. She was sent to the court to be this Queen Isabella's charm teacher and Isabella hated her because the, my heroine was everything that she wasn't. So she devised a way she wanted to get rid of this charm teacher. And she knew how. About this time all the uh, there was also a lot of alchemists. Alchemy was going on. Taking um, metal and trying to change it into something more precious. So She knew an alchemist that was doing some experiments. And it had been said that he had a philosopher's stone that allowed him to capture the spirit of animals in metal. What if he could capture the spirit of a person in metal? So she goes to him, and she has a way of blackmailing him into capturing the spirit of my heroine, my charm teacher, into uh, metal gates that were being forged in, in Madrid at that time and these gates were destined to be sent to the court of two sisters in New Orleans and so my heroine has been in the metal of those gates just waiting and so that little blessing whoever touches these will receive their charm it was a tongue in cheek wow. blessing from Isabella and what happens is, is that was, if someone who was a descendant of the alchemist touches those gates she's released and that happened because my hero is that person and when he touches those gates she emerges and he thinks that she's a tour guide dressed in her you know the language that she speaks and her actions um, so that's that's this book that I'm uh, working on for time travel. So it's more contemporary in nature than it's historical, but it's a lot of fun, too. So. Thank
1: you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for your reading, and thanks to all of you for joining us for this hour. Um, we'll be back next week. Um, and we're, we have a program that's focused on the fact that it's Black History Month, so we're going to have a couple very wonderful readers from the library's diversity committee, and um, I hope you all can come back out. And thanks again to Donna, and I hope we get to read um, The Trouble with Touch soon. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Thank you.